0: All right. While everyone's settling down, the announcements are seem redundant. Nothing new. We do have our men's prayer breakfast on Saturday morning on the 22nd of um, 22nd of June. That's a great time. Uh, some of the men are trying to read their Bible through in a year or some other Bible reading plan, and so it's an opportunity when they can ask questions. We talk about different scripture. And so it's a good time. We also eat pretty well. It's not healthy, but it's very good. And so it's a it's a good time to get together. Also a reminder, a prayer and uh, some financial needs for Camp Arete, July 14th to 20th. And for information or to donate, go to camparete.com. Then uh, Vacation Bible School, the dates were moved to July 22nd to 24th, and that... Um, Information is on the westhoustonbiblechurch.org dot org website, and also just a reminder of the tours coming up. We now have nineteen going on the Egypt trip. We need to have a we we hope to have a minimum of thirty. So that, since that's not for six months, that seems to, registration seems to be going along pretty well. And if you're considering going on the Israel trip, things are if you don't go to Israel, things are a little different. So because of the Greece trip. When you go to different countries, you have to handle or work with different travel agencies. So if you're thinking about going on the Greece part, we will have that information up probably within a week. And if you would register as soon as possible, we have to guess and pay for how many people we're guessing are going to go on the trip. And that's... that's. Without the gift of prophecy, that's impossible. So, anyhow, uh, those are the announcements. Scripture says, "How shall a young man cleanse his way? How shall young man, cl- how shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed, according to the uh, heed? Therefore, according to thy word, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path." Jesus pray to the Father sanctify them in truth thy word is truth for the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our god shall stand forever before we get started we'll have a few moments of silent prayer scripture teaches that we are to walk according to the holy spirit romans 8 walk by means of the holy spirit galatians 5:16 that the Holy Spirit, that relationship with God through the Holy Spirit is the key to the Christian life. And when we walk according to our sin nature, then we have to recover, which simply means to confess sin, First John 1, 9. And when we admit or acknowledge our sin, then God instantly forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Well, Father we're so thankful for your grace, your goodness we're thankful for your word that is so uh, significant in our lives and is with it is infallible it is without error. We can trust it completely in everything that it says and Father, we know that there is such an attack today upon the truth of your word. there is hostility in numerous quarters of our society and culture today that just seems to increase from year to year. And yet, Father, you have given us warnings in your word, as we see in this entire epistle of Second Peter, that, that there will come times when there will be many false teachers, those who are teaching just completely fake doctrine. And they are making things up as they go along, and they are attacking those who hold to the historic beliefs of Christianity. And there are those who, who deny the truth, even though they claim to be Christians, they deny so many elements of the truth because they reject your authority. Father, we pray that as we study denied and focus in on these issues, that you'd help us to understand them and uh, see them for what they are and help us to answer those questions in terms of our own walk with you and the fact that we too need to be in submission to your authority in every area of our life. As Scripture says, we are to take every thought captive for Christ. And so, Father, we pray that we might be able to focus and that God the Holy Spirit would use this time to mature us and to deepen our understanding of the truth of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, for just a little review as we are in the beginning sections of our beginning lessons of our study of 2 Peter. We're in the uh, fifth lesson, which is actually part two of a study we began last time on on what it means to be an apostle in the New Testament. Peter begins his second epistle simply as Simon Peter. And the only other place where Peter is called Simon is outside of the Gospels is in Acts chapter 15, verse 14. His name, uh, Petros, the the Greek, is equivalent to the Aramaic Kephas, which means rock or stone. And he's usually referred to to in the New Testament by uh, Petros or by Kephas, and only, as I said, only one time by Simeon, which is the uh, original form of of Simon. He emphasizes two things about himself, as I pointed out last time, that he is a bond servant, literally a slave, and we talked about that in the the problems that we have in the Anglo world because of various uh, historical issues related to chattel slavery. Uh, terms like servant indicate a a voluntary paid position as opposed to The emphasis that is really here, and a servant or a bondslave in this sense is, is someone who is completely under the authority of their master, and carrying out their master's wishes and their master's will, and that connects to the significance of being an apostle. That an apostle is someone who is commissioned by someone to a particular task, and so authority is present in both of those terms. I think that's important because when we get into the second uh, part of this opening, uh, this opening uh, salutation, we see that he addresses it not to those who are in a geographical location— We know from a statement he makes later in 1 Peter 3 that he's writing to the same group that he wrote to, or excuse me, in 2 Peter 3, that he's writing to the same people he addressed 1 Peter 2. But he refers to them as those who have obtained or those who received like precious faith with us. That with us is really important because it shows that there is this commonality of a set doctrinal framework, a set body of truth that is uh, has been given to the apostles, but it has also been accepted and received by those to whom he is writing. And that body of truth is what is being challenged by the false teachers that uh, Peter is warning them about. That comes across mostly in chapter two, and some into uh, into chapter three of this epistle. That's the main reason he's writing, is to warn them of the coming of these of these false teachers and what they will uh, what they will uh, teach. So we have these two key words, and last time we started looking at what the Bible teaches about apostleship. And today we have people who claim the title of apostle. We have churches that are claimed to be the uh, Apostolic church, whatever that means, and it means different things in terms of different groups. We have others who go around calling themselves Bishop. I know of one pastor in this town who went from being pastor so and reverend so and so to pastor so and so to bishop so and so and you know it it just flies in the face of a biblical understanding. Of these issues. But if you go from here to Africa, you really run into that that problem. You have all kinds of church leaders who've adopted a variety of strange titles to elevate themselves. So we need to understand what the Bible teaches about apostleship. And where I ended last time was establishing the fact that there are, uh, that it is not only a spiritual gift, but it is an office but that there are spiritual gifts that are temporary that were just given for the infancy period of the church. So just in terms of a quick review, uh, the term apostle was used in classical Greek to refer to the commander of a military or naval operation, or the governor of a Greek colony, so this has the idea of someone who's been given a position by a higher authority he's been given a mission and a an authority, an authority role over others in the New Testament. It refers to those who are commissioned by an authorizing agent. The reason I say an authorizing agent is you have a couple of different groups. You have those who are commissioned directly by Jesus Christ to a narrow view. Remember, the foundation of the temple in, in, the, in the New Jerusalem, the foundation are the, are the 12 stones for the 12 apostles, So you can't have more. There is a set body of this distinct group. But you have others I'd call apostles in the New Testament. They're commissioned by a local church to send out, uh, they're committed to go on a mission to carry out the great commission given by Jesus Christ. So they are missionaries because it, it would be legitimate to call any missionary an apostle in that lowercase sense, but because we don't. Clearly teach what these terms mean, all it would do is create a lot of confusion and uh, and feed a lot of arrogance. so it's not a good idea to use it in that uh, sense. It has not traditionally been used that way in the church outside of uh, outside of the first century. So we talked about the first use of the verb, which simply meant to uh, send out Jesus sent out his disciples. And then it, they're identified in Matthew ten two. Those original disciples uh, are identified as apostles uh, in Matthew ten two and Luke six thirteen. Of course, Matthew and Luke were writing much later, once they had transitioned from being disciples to apostles. So they're making uh, an anachronistic identification of those twelve disciples as those who would become minus. Uh, Uh, minus Judas, those who would become the apostles of the church. A third point we looked at was Jesus is identified as the apostle of the faith, that is, he's commissioned by the Father to come to the earth in order to carry out his high priestly ministry, so he's called the apostle and high priest of our confession, and those two nouns are closely related uh, in the Greek. Fifth, identify the key thing that whenever you read apostle in any context in the New Testament, you need to think who sent them, who does the sending, who is the commissioning agency? Is it Christ, or is it a local church, or is it just the body of apostles commissioning someone to go on a mission? Uh, Second, we have to identify what the mission is. And third, when does this sending occur? Jesus uses the verb apostello to send the twelve in the Gospels, but remember he sent them uh, to the house of Israel and the house of Judah only and prohibited them from going to Gentiles. So that's a totally different scenario, a different dispensation than what takes place after the day of Pentecost when you have the uh, eleven apostles. Then we began to look at this whole issue that apostle was a temporary spiritual gift and that it was limited. And it was in, uh, specifically stated in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty nine: are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of ministry? And the answer is, of course, no. There are distinctions, that there are different spiritual gifts diff- given to different people. Not everyone has all of these uh, different spiritual gifts, and then we came to First Corinthians thirteen eight and began to look at it. And one of the things I want you to go back and review for you is I want you to turn in your Bibles to Numbers twelve six for just a minute. Numbers twelve six. So while you're turning there to Numbers twelve six, I want to point out what the flow here. In the first seven verses of first, first Corinthians 13, Paul defines, describes, he doesn't really define love, he describes the characteristics of love, and then he concludes by saying love never fails. What's his point? His point is that love endures in contrast to that which will not endure. Love is permanent in contrast to that which is temporary. So in some sense, we could say that all of the spiritual gifts are temporary because they're only related to this time period on the earth. He picks three specific gifts as his illustration. Prophecy and knowledge are both said to reach a point where they will be abolished. That indicates that something will happen, That and it's a passive verb, so it receives the action. Prophecy and knowledge are acted upon. Something occurs that causes a cessation of the need for uh, prophecy and knowledge. Tongues is different it's sandwiched in between the other two uses a different verb which and it's in the middle voice which indicates that it will just stop. it just ceases there's no not necessarily indicating something uh, something acting upon it um, because that's not part of what he's talking about here then and notice how it's prophecy and then knowledge. And then knowledge, in verse 9, is mentioned first before prophecy. So it's interesting the way he orders things here. It's very well structured. And he says about knowledge and prophecy that they're in part. That basically means that they're incomplete. No one with the gift of prophecy or the gift of knowledge knew a sufficient revelation as we have in a completed canon of Scripture. So these are incomplete. I like to use that word because what we discover when we get to the end is that there's something that completes them that's important. So you have this this present situation Paul is talking about where these spiritual gifts, these revelatory gifts, are partial. An apostle was also a revelatory gift, that they are partial or incomplete And then he says that when the perfect comes, then that which is incomplete will be abolished. So that which is incomplete is prophecy and knowledge. The perfect acts upon those gifts, whatever the perfect is. And I think that that the Greek word there, teleos, indicates the complete. When that which is complete comes, that which is partial will be abolished. Then when we get into um, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, I sort of revise this a little bit to try to make it a little more clear. Verse 11 and verse 12 are illustrations of the principle that he's talking about. Verse 11 uses the adult-child analogy. The child is analogous to when things are incomplete The adult is analogous to when things are complete. So he says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I I had incomplete information, incomplete knowledge. I'm still in the process of growth and development as a child. I, uh, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But contrast, when I became a man, I put away childish things. So Paul is still talking about two stages. There's a stage one and a stage two. What we'll see when we get to verse 12 is the stage one is now and the stage two is then. Now what you have is some people who come along and the then stage, they think, is when they're face-to-face with the Lord because of this first line in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. The Greek word is the word from which we get enigma. So it's enigmatic. It's incomplete. We're not sure what we're looking at because we don't have a complete picture yet. So we look, as I pointed out last time, we're looking in a mirror. It's not what the King James translated it as, that we see through a glass darkly. That indicates that we're looking through glass you've seen antique that is cloudy or distorted and when you look through it what you're looking at is somewhat distorted and it's not giving you a, a clear uh, a clear vision of of your the object of your vision but that's not what this is saying it is the word for mirror a mirror reflects a person back on themselves As James says, Christians are not to look at the mirror of God's word and walk away as if they haven't seen an accurate reflection of themselves. So this now period is a period when we have an enigmatic view of ourselves because of that which is incomplete. It's comparable to that incomplete period when knowledge is incomplete, prophecy is incomplete, but when that which, is, that which completes it comes, then that which is incomplete is done away with. So the now indicates for Paul's time the, the apostolic period. And, but he contrasts that, that there will be a time when we will see face-to-face, and people jump to the conclusion that that face-to-face is face-to-face with Jesus. That's not what it's saying. It is saying face-to-face with the mirror that is now complete, giving a complete reflection of oneself. Now, how do I know that? Well, that's why I wanted you to turn to, uh, to Numbers. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6, okay? Numbers 12, 6. This is God speaking to Moses. 12, 3... Uh, God makes the point, the Holy Spirit makes a point through Moses that the man Moses was very humble more than all men who are on the face of the earth. Okay, Moses is a very strong leader, so this doesn't have anything to do with being humiliated. It has to do with somebody who is under authority. And so he's constantly facing challenges by others to his authority. This is the background here when the Lord is coming to him and to, Mo, to Aaron and Miriam, and he's going to give him a, a lesson on this. And he says in verse 6, hear, my, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Okay, so he's talking about the normal operation when he is speaking to a prophet. Not Moses, but to other prophets. It's through a dream or it's through a vision. But then he says, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak to him, and notice the King James translates it face to face it's not face to face in the hebrew it is mouth to mouth but it's an idiom and what it means is face to face so when we're looking at 1 corinthians 13:12 for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face this language is language that of revelation. It's the language related to God's disclosure of himself to prophets. Remember, Moses was a prophet. He said, there will come a prophet greater than I. That's one of the uh, great uh, messianic prophecies in Deuteronomy. So God says, I speak with him face to face. What does it mean to speak face to face? If you see a dream or a vision, remember the dreams and visions of, of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, they had to be interpreted. It wasn't clear what those symbols meant. Even after Daniel understood what Nebuchadnezzar had seen in his dream, he still had to have revelation from God to be able to explain what those symbols meant. It was enigmatic until God revealed it. So that's what it says here. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. When the rabbis translated the Hebrew text into the Septuagint around the second to third century B.C., the Greek word they used to translate dark set- sayings was enig- was enigma, enigmatically, and, and so this is the language that Paul is borrowing. The imagery Paul is borrowing when he's making this point in First Corinthians thirteen twelve is that that this is an illustration of the incompleteness of prophecy to the completeness of the revelation. That's, it, that's the background. So 13.12a, for now we see through a mirror dimly, that is talking about this first gift, the first incomplete gift, which was prophecy, and the now is in the present situation. When there was an incomplete New Testament, when the totality of Scripture, or the canon, which just means the rule or standard, that set of sixty-six books of the New Testament, he is saying now it's incomplete. It hasn't all been written yet, so we don't have a complete, sufficient revelation in the New Testament. It's still enigmatic. It's it, we're, we're looking at this this mirror. And it's incomplete. It's partial, and that's that's the now, and that's what we see here emphasized also by a very significant use of this Greek word for now. There are two different words for now. There's the word ardi, and the word nuni. And when we look at this word, when they're used separately and you just have a context where only one or the other is used, they are almost can almost mean identically the same thing. They they're almost identical. But when they're both in the same context, there's a different meaning. Artie has a sense of right now, such as if we were talking and I was just saying well well now it seems like rain, but but then a couple of sentences later, I said, well, now we'll be able to go do such and so. The second now was nuni. It would refer to maybe now this week or now this month, as opposed to the first use, which would mean now right now. So that's the difference. The "already" indicates an immediacy. So Paul's drawing a contrast here between now and then, between being a child and being adult between now in a narrow sense of right now and now in a broader sense, meaning in this general age, which is the dispensation of the church. So the first example is that prophecy is incomplete and it relates to the language comes from God speaking about prophets and the contrast between how he reveals himself to most prophets in contrast to the unique prophetic ministry of Moses. Then the second the, the second example he uses has to do with incomplete knowledge. He says, for now I know in part, and he's talking about his own knowledge. Now I know my knowledge of God's revelation is incomplete now, and he says, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So again, he's making this contrast. But for, um, for many people, this idea of the completed canon here is, is well, it doesn't fit their more sophisticated theology. The reason I say that, and I'm being a little sarcastic, is that, uh, and he he was a friend of mine, a professor at Dallas Seminary who I had when I was in seminary. I remember Tommy Ice and I sitting on the front row, and at the end of every class, we thought, this is one of the greatest ways to teach theology we've ever heard of. This guy's just phenomenal, and he was, and for about the first 10 years, it was that way, and then he went off, and he got a second doctorate somewhere, got infused with a lot of human viewpoint, and came back, and he would just... Terrible after that. And he made a comment, and Pastor Bruce Baumgartner over at Pine Valley was sitting in class and and he was teaching on pneumatology and the class had to write a paper on First Corinthians 13 and they had to write a position paper on tongues. And this professor, who's not charismatic at all, that wasn't the issue, said said, Now please, I don't want anybody to try to argue for a completed canon view of of this passage because th- that's been demonstrated to be completely fallacious many times and no respected scholar holds that view anymore since he said that which was sometime in the middle to late 80s there have been at least 5 articles published not only in bibsac but also in the Conservative Theological Journal and in the Chafer Theological Journal that have all defended the completed canon view of interpretation of this passage because it 's the only one that makes sense of all of the Greek and Greek that 's in here and the and the structure so the first example, see it 's set up so well in let 's go back to first corinthians 13. 80. he talks off that we he talks about the fact that knowledge is incomplete, prophecy is incomplete, prophecy will be abolished, knowledge will be abolished, and now he comes down and he gives an example of how prophecy uh, is going to fa- be abolished, and then how knowledge is going to be abolished, and so it makes perfect sense, but they still will come along, and a lion's share of interpreters will come along and try to show that what this means is when we're face-to-face with the Lord. Now, I published one of those articles I referenced earlier that came out in, I think it was the Chafer Journal. And um, in the course of that, I listed all the different interpretations for the then. The then could be when you die and you're face-to-face with the Lord. At the rapture, you're face-to-face with the Lord. At the great white throne, you're face to face with the Lord. Uh, there were several, there are about eight or nine different interpretations, but they all came down to the fact that when you're going to be face to face with the Lord, either at death or the second coming or the rapture or some other event. Now, last time I ended by going to 1 Corinthians thirteen thirteen, and we were kind of rushed and running late, so this is why I'm giving an extended review here. This is so important. Paul concludes by saying, and now abide faith, hope, and love. Why does he change the word now? See, that's not always addressed, and often what you hear today from scholars is, well, that's just stylistic variation. Well, stylistic variation may be a characteristic of good writing in English literature in this time period. It wasn't 100 or 200 years ago, but it is considered a principle today, but it wasn't a principle of literature at the time that Paul wrote. So when he changes to a synonym from one word to another, you first have to ask, why does he make that change? If we believe that every word proceeds from the mouth of God, and that every jot and tittle is inspired by God, then we have to say there must be some reason why there's this change. And when you analyze it, and I can cite a number of Greek Greek sources for the differences between the ardi and the nuni, He says, and now abide faith, hope, and love. Paul is talking about a broader period of time. He's saying, but now we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Now in this apostolic age when the New Testament hasn't been completed, we have incomplete information. But when that which completes comes, that's the meaning of perfect, that which completes, when that comes, then that which is incomplete will be done away with. And then now, that is, and now in a broader sense, in the church age, abide faith, hope, and love. So he's talking about the fact that there's these temporary spiritual gifts that will not survive the apostolic period. What does survive, what doesn't fail, remember he started off saying love never fails. And he cl- concludes the greatest of these is love. Why? Because it continues beyond time. But this this linkage of faith, hope, and love demonstrates that that the um, that this completed period isn't when we're face to face with the Lord, because when we're face to face with the Lord, we're only going to have love, because faith is not based on sight. When we're face to face with the Lord, uh, faith is not based on sight. It's it's based on belief, not on empiricism. So faith will not be operative. This is what Hebrews 11.1 1 says. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We will not be operating on faith when we're in heaven because we're going to be in heaven where we have that empirical reality of our relationship with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hope is the same way. Hope is something that is based on not on what is seen. It's not based on an empirical, uh, factual basis. It is based on that which we've been told from the Scripture. So Romans 8, uh, 25 says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. See, uh, in verse 24, hope that is seen is not hope. So when we're in heaven and face to face with the Lord, we're not going to have hope. We're not going to have faith we have because it's been realized. So therefore, this view that is so popular today that these sign gifts will continue until we're face-to-face with the Lord doesn't make sense at all because it can't be face-to-face with the Lord because what continues after the cessation of prophecy and knowledge is faith, hope, and love. And if prophecy and knowledge go to the point that we're face-to-face with the Lord and faith, hope, and love continue after that, that's in heaven, faith and hope won't be there. So that just doesn't work, okay? You're left with the view that now is the apostolic period, then is the broader period, the new broader period of the church age, and then when we're face-to-face with the Lord, this is when love never fails, uh, it continues, and that's the greatest, why the greatest of these is love. Okay, what that takes us in terms of our study, therefore, of apostleship is that gift is a temporary gift, and part of the reason we also say that it's temporary is because of its purpose, and that purpose is described in Ephesians 2.20. Let me give you the context. Paul is talking to Gentile Christians, and he's teaching them about the fact that now in the body of Christ, there is one new people of God. That the Jews were and continue to be God's chosen people. They were custodians of divine revelation. They received that revelation, they they preserved that revelation, and God made promises to them which eventually he will fulfill. But in this church age, because Israel had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, God has a new people that he will work through for different purposes. And in this dispensation, Jewishness and Gentileness do not matter in terms of a relationship with God. In the Old Testament, a Gentile could only go so far in approaching the temple. He had to stay in the courtyard of the Gentiles, Jews could go further, only Levites could get into the inner sanctum, and only the Aaronic priest could get into the Holy of Holies. So we read here, now therefore you, you Gentiles, are no longer strangers and foreigners, which is what their situation was before uh, before the cross. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So all of those who are believers in this age are now fellow citizens in the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So this household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This is not prophets and apostles. If it was prophets and apostles, you would think Old Testament and then New Testament. But because he puts apostles before prophets, this is talking about the New Testament gift of apostleship and the New Testament gift of prophets. This new entity is the church that is being built in this church age. So this household of God is defined here as that which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Something that is foundational is something that only occurs once. If you build the Empire State Building, you only laid one foundation. If you laid the uh, built the new World Trade Center, it only has one foundation. You don't relay the foundation in every every generation. There's only one. so that indicates again it is a temporary gift for a unique purpose. Now point seven as a foundational gift and a gift that required a personal commissioning by the Lord Jesus Christ as well as having been a witness of the resurrected Lord Jesus apostleship was a temporary gift you had to be personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ in an objective situation now the the 11 that are left over after Judas betrayal and failure after after those the, those those apostles, they all were directly commissioned by the Lord. That's revealed in all four gospels. Paul is is saved as one out of time, but it is an, still an objective revelation. The men with him saw the light. They heard someone speaking. They just couldn't understand what the words were. But it's but when but when Paul told them what had happened, they could be a witness to the fact that something objective had happened on the road to Damascus. It wasn't that Paul just had some internal vision or as my uh, college Western Civ professor said, he was so overwhelmed by guilt from all the Christians that he had murdered that he just had a psychological break on the road to Emmaus and he had this traumatic uh, vision at that point, it change, changed his life. He's just imagining things. So he had a psychotic break. And that's not an uncommon interpretation by liberals because they don't believe in an objective revelation of God. So it's foundational, that means it's temporary. Second, because the requirements, the qualifications are such that you had to have been personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ and you had to be a witness of his life and his death and his resurrection, that makes it temporary. Anybody today claiming that they um, that they are an apostle would have to be able to demonstrate that they were a witness of the resurrection. Now, because of this, we're going to look at a... Uh, um, couple of passages a little later on but because of that i've always thought that that paul was probably a witness to the crucifixion or at least to the arrest or to part of it or and to some of the things that jesus taught and the reason is is because paul had come to uh, come to jerusalem when he was 14 and he was uh, entered into the school, entered the yeshiva under Gamaliel in order to be a, a rabbi, and to be trained under the greatest Pharisaical Pharisee rabbi in in that generation. And so, when when Paul is in Jerusalem at fourteen, Jesus hadn't even started his ministry yet. So Paul, by the time Jesus is crucified on the cross, Paul is probably in his early to mid-twenties. So he would have been in Jerusalem at the, during the three years of Christ's ministry on the earth. But he's not mentioned in the Gospels because it's not important to mention him in the Gospels because his story doesn't come into play until Acts. But that would put him there, and so he would have been a witness of Christ's ministry, even though he was not a believer at that time. Well, Guess what? James, who wrote the epistle to James, who is the, brother of the, of the, the half-brother of the humanity of Jesus, and Jude, who wrote the epistle from Jude, who is a, also a half-brother of the humanity of Jesus, were not believers, according to 1 Corinthians 15, until they saw the resurrected Christ. So they were witnesses of Christ's ministry on the earth as well. But before they they were believers, so what we see here is that there's two categories of apostles that existed. The first is the unique spiritual gift, which was given to only those uh, twelve men, I believe, the eleven original disciples, excluding Judas Iscariot, and later Paul, as described in First Corinthians chapter 15, verses seven through ten. They are commissioned personally by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. They are given the authority to communicate the gospel and church age doctrine throughout the world. See that word authority? They are representatives, they are personal representatives of Jesus Christ commissioned to establish the body of Christ. That's phenomenal the level of authority given to those men to do what they did to start start the church but the emphasis here is they have that level of authority to them are given the keys to the to, to heaven now what that means is that that a key opens the door what is the what is the key the key was the gospel the gospel is what opens the door to heaven. So they are given the keys, as Jesus says, the keys to the kingdom, because through the mentioning, uh, of the proclamation of the gospel, they can enter into heaven. Uh, those who respond can enter into heaven. So they're given the authority to communicate the gospel and church-age doctrine throughout the world and to lead the incipient church, this baby new organization, this brand-new Entity coming into existence, and they're given the authority to write the these letters that are going to form the body of truth, the body of doctrine for the church age. We get all of our understanding of Christianity from these epistles that are written by the apostles. Now, that is really important because when we get into the second part of, of this verse and and Peter is talking about about the faith that they have received, what we're going to see is that references this body of truth. It is a statement that is comparable to the one that we find in Jude 1.3. Now, we're going to see a lot of parallels as we study through 2 Peter, between 2 Peter and Jude, but in Jude... 1.3. Now Jude writes later, Jude is writing when the false teachers that Peter warned about are now on the scene. And he says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the faith it's referring to this body of truth, this body of doctrine. So that comes directly out of the authority that the apostles had to communicate God's revelation to this infant church. In doing that, they're temporarily empowered to perform miracles and healings, signs and wonders as, a, as credentials for their ministry this establishes them as representatives to God. And what stood out was that even when they ran into these uh, fake exorcists, like you had with Sceva in Ephesus, that what Paul did in casting out a demon was much more incredible than anything these charlatans did. And the healings that Uh, The miracles that Jesus performed, the miracles that were performed by the apostles were unlike any so-called miracles by by any other uh, religious leaders. The conclusion is that this was a temporary spiritual gift and a temporary office, and it vanished with the death of John the apostle who died somewhere between 95 and 100 uh, A.D., The second use of apostle is for a pioneer missionary who's commissioned by a local church in the first century, but he did not have the spiritual gift of apostle. He is simply sent out to evangelize and to teach the word and to pastor. The same way that we send out missionaries today, they go out if they're going to a new area, pioneer missionary they proclaim the gospel. When they have converts, which may take anywhere from five minutes to five decades, then they have a congregation that they begin to teach the word, teach, as Jesus said, teaching them to obey all things that I have taught you. So that's the role of this lowercase apostle. It's used to refer to Barnabas, Junius, and a few others in the in the scriptures in acts fourteen fourteen and romans uh, sixteen seven so they are they function under the authority of the apostles with the capital a for and, and those verses read but when the apostles Barnabas and paul now Paul is an apostle uppercase Barnabas was not, but if you look at the context of Acts 14.14, Barnabas and Paul were both commissioned by the church in Antioch to take the gospel uh, to Cyprus and then to what is today south-central Turkey. In Romans 16.7, Paul writes a closing greeting to Andronicus and Junia. We don't know who they were. He says, "'My countrymen,' and my fellow prisoners. So it could be that when he is writing to them, they're they're Jewish believers uh, who are of note among the apostles. So that could mean a couple of different things. It could include them within the group of apostles, and this would be lowercase apostles. It could just simply be that that in the community of the uppercase apostles, there were many other people who ministered and worked with them, and they were known by them, and they were involved with them much as, as others were. The ninth point is that in the church age, apostle is a spiritual gift, Ephesians 4, 10, and 11. Apostle was a spiritual gift. As such, it cannot be bestowed by a man so you it's not bestowed by laying on of hands or anything else they're not uh, chosen that way. It is not as as Paul says in galatians one one it's not by men or through men or because of men. He has that authority because he has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. All spiritual gifts are sovereignly distributed by God the Holy Spirit as we saw in first uh, Corinthians chapter twelve, he determines who gets what what gift first corinthians twelve twenty eight and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and various kinds of languages. so God is the one who appoints these. And there seems to be an order here, at least among the first three, apostles, then prophets, then teachers. Apostles and prophets are no longer on the scene, so we just have teachers, those who explain and communicate the word of God. Ephesians 4.11, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and on the other hand, some pastors and teachers. So there's a clear break there that those last two are grouped together as, as the same gift. They pastored through teaching. Pastoring is leadership. Teaching is the way you feed the sheep. That's what uh, Jesus' lesson was to Peter and John, John 20. And the purpose for all of those gifts was to equip the saints. It's funny because people think the gift of evangelism is to evangelize. Well, that's part of it. But the purpose for the gift of evangelism is to equip the saints to do the work of evangelism, which means that most believers are to be doing a lot of the evangelism, and the evangelists are the ones who are supposed to be training them to do the evangelism. Now, under the tenth point... The qualifications in Acts 122. this is a scenario Christ has already ascended to heaven. Uh, the uh, 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 disciples, along with many of their friends, have gathered in the upper room, which is where they had celebrated the, um, the Seder, the Last Supper, before Christ went to the cross. And Peter has decided they need to select someone to replace Judas Iscariot. Acts one twenty two beginning with the baptism, he's stating the qualification of the person they're going to choose. And he says, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. So first of all, they had to be a witness of his life. Second, a witness of his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15.8, uh, Paul says about himself, and last of all he was seen by me also, so he saw the resurrected Christ as by one born out of due time. for I am the least of the apostles, for who uh, I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the Church of God. They were also given the ability to perform miracles. Now, not every Christian performed miracles. Apostles and some of their close associates under their authority performed miracles, but it wasn't as if they were going around and if they could heal people, they weren't going into the hospitals to heal people. The purpose wasn't to heal people. The purpose was to get attention demonstrate they had a unique position and authority, and then to give them the gospel. So 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says in defending his own apostleship, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So the fact that he talks about a true apostle indicates that there are others who were fake apostles at that time who were claiming to be the apostles. But he is saying that one of the unique characteristics of the true apostles was the the miracles, the signs and wonders that they they performed. In Acts 2.43, we see an example of that on the day of Pentecost, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. There was only the 12, uh, the twelve, the 11, that were there on the day of Pentecost that, sp- that spoke in tongues. So they were the only leaders there. They're the foundation of the church. They're laying that foundation there. They spoke in languages because there were people there from anywhere. I, I've tried to figure this out. Anywhere from 8 to 12 language groups. Uh, Norm Geisler said he had had a conversation with Gleason Archer who's quite a linguist and Old Testament scholar at Trinity Seminary. Gleason Archer maintained that there were only that there were 12 language groups among the different people that are there in Acts 1 that there that there are only 12 language groups there. And so that's one apostle for each language now i don 't know i 've never been able to document that He was much more of a linguist and had much more information on that than I do, but that seems to make a, a good good sense in acts five twelve at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in solomon 's portico so again and again the the that which authenticated the apostles. The gift of apostleship was the sign of miracles. In Acts 16.16, 16, Paul casts a, a demon out of a slave girl. She had a spirit of divination, of tell, telling people's fortunes, and her masters were making a lot of money off of her, and she was kept following Paul around and saying, this is the servant of the Most High God. He didn't need a demon uh, authenticating his ministry so he cast the demon out of her that angered her masters and that's why they were they were sent to uh, sent, sent to jail so then we come to Acts 19:11 now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out of them this is similar to a statement earlier regarding Peter, that that people just wanted to get in his shadow and they would be healed. So that was a sign of their apostolic authority. The 11th point is that apostleship came only after the day of Pentecost and the beginning of the church age. Uh, Matthew 10, when Jesus is sending out the disciples... To go to the house of Israel and the house of Judah he uses the verb apostello. Later they're even called apostles, but that was not related to the church. That was related to Israel. So when we compare Matthew 16, 18 with Ephesians 4, 8 through 11, Jesus is seeing the church as still future. He said to Peter, on this rock I will, future tense, I will build my church. The twelfth point the apostles were recipients of direct revelation from God and were the only authorized source for revelation. You could add the New Testament prophets to that once the last apostle disappeared, so did revelation. God is no longer revealing himself apart from scripture second timothy three sixteen second Peter one twenty to twenty one and again uh, Ephesians 2:20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ the chief cornerstone Paul was the the 13th point Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and Peter was specifically identified as the apostle to the Jews we don't know about the others nothing is said about their sphere of influence we don't know we know a little bit more about John But we really don't know much about any of the others. There's a lot of tradition. There's a lot of legend, some of which is true, some of which is not true. But they went throughout the known world at that time. Thomas went as far as as India. And there is a community of Christians in India that can trace their history all the way back to the Apostle Thomas when he came and established the church there. And I know one lady who works for APAC, who's a Christian. She's the Southwest Christian Director, and she is uh, she is from that community. Her parents were from that community. They were believers, and uh, they can trace their way all the way back. So it's 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 phenomenal. The the apostles carried the gospel throughout the known world. In Galatians two seven, Paul says, but on the contrary. When they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, so he's talking about the, uh, probably talking about that Jerusalem council, knowing that that God had commissioned him specifically to take the gospel to the uncircumcised as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, that is to the Jews, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles." And now we come to the last point. There's no such thing as apostolic succession of persons. In the early church this idea developed, you find this language. But if you look carefully, they're not talking about one person laying hands on another person and as a succession of persons. It is an apostolic succession of doctrine that when they laid hands on they were saying this person understands the truth and the teaching of scripture and so we're identifying him with us that's what laying on of hands did was to show this identification and it's an identification of content not person so that this idea that develops from false teaching that goes into what becomes the roman catholic church that there is a succession of of, of the gift is completely uh, completely false. This is why when we get into the second part of verse uh, verse uh, two next week, to those to those or verse one actually uh, to those who have obtained a like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, there's an identification. "...of the faith of the apostles with the faith of those who are the recipients of the epistle." So that's the issue. And that's the contrast with the false teachers who are changing doctrine, teaching other things that are not part of the apostolic uh, body of truth that's grounded in what we know as the canon of Scripture, the 66 books of the New Testament." Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to study through uh, the scripture here to think about very carefully about the spiritual gift of apostleship, the claim of this unique authority to speak for you, to represent you in this this special way and to communicate by through the, the revelatory means of the Holy Spirit to communicate the absolute truth of your word. Father, we thank you for that, that we can trust it. And the bottom line for us is a claim to authority. Are we going to trust your word, or are we going to trust in man, or are we going to trust in our reason, or trust in empiricism, or our feelings? And ultimately, the word of God has to be more real to us than any experience, any philosophy, any logic chain that contradicts your word. We may not understand it fully. There may be other reasons why there appears to be a contradiction, and we need to ultimately just trust your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.